Let me just quickly also tell you why we're about to spend some time walking through this section of a very ancient text. Shaka is just so well prayed that we would see in the Bible what it is, God's word to us. That's what we Christians believe about this book, that, that the God who made us and who rules over all things is a God who speaks, that he wants to know us and to be known by us, and that the way he's chosen to be known by us is by, by speaking to us in these words that have been protected and preserved over thousands of years so that we could read them today and know about him and not just know about him, but, but actually know him. As a church, one of the ways that we build out our practices based on this belief we have that God has spoken in his word is, is that on Sunday mornings, after we've sung together and prayed together, we always have a time where we, we look into this Bible and try to understand what it means. And our practice is to take a, a, a section of it and just go through it section by section all the way to the end from beginning to end. And that's what we're going to do with 1 Corinthians for the next few months together. This is a discipline that we think helps us pay extra close attention to what God has said. It helps protect us as a church from just talking about the parts of the Bible that we like best, the parts that don't embarrass us or make us ask any hard questions, but instead submit to all of it because we think it's all from him. And our, our coming back to it week after week, taking just the next section in line and doing our best to understand what it means is how we submit ourselves to God to listen to him and to learn from him. That's what we're gonna do together this morning and in every week throughout the rest of the spring. Final thing I'll mention is that you should have available to you out here on the, on the table in the, in the entryway, uh, a little card like this one that gives every text and every sermon for the whole series from now until the first week of July. It's all mapped out. We would love for you to take one of these and use it Use it to prepare yourself for these sermons. You know, ahead of, the, ahead of the sermon, you'll always know what text is coming up. You can read your Bible ahead of time to, to get your mind around it and go ahead and start asking questions that you hope will be answered. Going ahead and start praying for whoever's preaching that day, that the Lord will help them as they prepare and then as they deliver the sermon that they've made ready. Uh, please use this. So stick it on your fridge with a, with a magnet or put it in your Bible uh, that, that you'll be opening each morning or wherever you're gonna see this most regularly, please put a copy and, and prepare to make the most of this time together in 1 Corinthians. I want to prepare us to make the most of this time together through the sermon I'm going to preach to you now on the first nine verses of this letter. This, uh, the first nine verses of 1 Corinthians are, are Paul's opening. It's his greeting to the congregation he's writing to. And, and just like our typical letters back and forth to one another, uh, his follows a protocol. Uh, last week, I was on vacation with my family for, for after Christmas and up into the new year. And this week, I've spent a lot of my time paying the typical vacation tax that you all know all too well if you are in a job like mine and take vacations like I do. There was a lot of email to respond to when I got back. I spent a lot of my time this week responding to it. Uh, no offense, you know, if you were one of the ones who sent me an email, I was so glad to get it, really was. But you probably got a response that sounded something like, I found myself as I'm working through this mountain of email, falling into the typical ruts. Hey, so-and-so, fill in the blank. How are you doing? So great to hear from you. Happy New Year. Hope you and your family had a great Christmas. Sorry if you got one of those and I said that exact thing to you. I really do hope you had a good Christmas. Uh, you're just not the only person I hope had a great Christmas. And I was following the rules, right? This is what you do when you respond to an email at this time of year. There's, there's a protocol, a set of expectations. 
In the ancient world, they had conventions like these too. They'd typically start a letter with who's writing it, like Paul's going to do right here. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. That's who's writing this to you. Then they'd move into who it is that they're writing to, just like Paul's about to do here. They'll say something nice about that person typically. Maybe they'd include some sort of typical greeting or maybe not Happy New Year or hope you had a good Christmas, but, but something like peace to you, some sort of well-wishing comment. And we'll see Paul does that. You can see a lot of these elements at work in the verses I'm going to read to you in a moment. And for that reason, simply because you can tell he's following a protocol here, it can be kind of tempting to skip over these first verses to get to the good stuff. You know, if you were speed reading one of my emails, it would make sense to me if you'd skip over the how are you doing, happy new year, hope you had a great Christmas part. Those are just conventions that you know need to be there or else you sound like you're rude or don't care. We could be tempted to kind of skip over these initial verses in one of Paul's letters and think that they don't have that much to teach us. Let's get to what he really wants to say. But that would be a big mistake. And this morning I want to show you why. See, what Paul does in his letters is he'll use these greetings that come with some of the basic expectations of his time and place to give you hints along the way of what the letter is really going to be about. He'll give you a preview of what to expect. And that's what I want to do for the whole series in 1 Corinthians by flagging for you the hints that he gives us in his first nine verses of his letter. I want to try to whet your appetite this morning for what's coming and to suggest for you how you can pray that God will use it in our church. Let me start by reading the text. I want to invite you to stand with me in honor of God's word as I pick up in 1 Corinthians verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1, and then read all the way through uh, verse 9. This is the word of the Lord. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that's in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you. And peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. Even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. So that you're not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And this is the word of God. You can be seated. I think the purpose of this letter Paul has written is summed up pretty well in one single phrase that Paul uses in verse 2. Look at it with me. Paul says that he's writing to the church of God in Corinth to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. There it is. What's this letter about? This letter's about what it means to be sanctified in Christ Jesus. And I want to break that little phrase down into two steps for us this morning. 
This is a letter about what it means to be sanctified. Sanctified, that's point one. And this is a letter about what it means to be in Christ Jesus. That's point two. Point number one, what it means to be sanctified. Point number two, what it means to be in Christ Jesus. I want to explain to you what I think Paul means here to whet your appetite for what Paul's going to do in the 16 chapters of this letter. So without further ado, point number one, what it means to be sanctified. That's what this letter is about. Do you notice how thick Paul lays it on in verse two? When he tells us who he's writing to, he gives us a lot more than just a name and an address. You know, he gives us, he gives us a sentence that won't fit on the front of an envelope. There's two pieces in this, in this first description of them that, that especially help us to see what it means to be sanctified. He tells us that the, church, that the church he's writing to is a church in Corinth. This is verse 2. Called to be saints. They're in Corinth. They're called to be saints or to be holy, to be set apart. To understand what it means to be sanctified, you need to understand what he means by addressing them as those who are in Corinth but called to be saints. Here's the thing. Paul sees them as in Corinth, but not of Corinth. When in reality, there's a lot more Corinth in this church than there should be. Paul addresses them as, as sanctified Christians set apart from what was normal. But already in the short time since he's been there, they've slipped back into the ways they were used to. It matters, friends, that they're in Corinth. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Corinth was an unusual city in the ancient Roman Empire. Uh, what makes Corinth unusual, it sheds a lot of light on what kind of problems this church was dealing with. Most of this letter is Paul trying to address problems that this church was dealing with. See, Corinth was a really, really wealthy town, but wealthy with new money, not old money. Corinth was more like the Gulch than like Belmede. Corinth was a city that was an up-and-comer. It was a city built out of the ruins of an older town that was destroyed by the Romans for a hundred years. This older town sat in rubble, just there. And then Rome decides to rebuild it as a colony where they could send freed slaves and former military veterans to give them a chance to make new lives for themselves. It was also Rome's attempt to get them off the Italian mainland, away from where they could make trouble for the Romans, put them over there, uh, over there in the, out in the provinces where no one will ever hear from them again. Let's put them there and let them see what they can build out of the ruins of this old town. So that's who was there. It was a city built from scratch, but here's what that meant. It meant it was a city where somebody could make a mark, where somebody could climb a ladder. It really functioned very similar to how the American colonies would have functioned at one time for people leaving Europe. See, in the ancient world, you didn't typically climb any ladders. Back then, you were born into the status you were probably going to have for your whole life. Maybe your family was a carpenter's family or a fisherman's family or a farmer's family or an upper-class family. If you were a woman born into a family like that, your life would be lived out in the home. If you were a man born into a family like that, you'd more than likely take up the family trade. But what wouldn't happen is you'd be born a fisherman and end up a king. That didn't happen, not back then. If you were on a ladder at all, it was because you were slipping down it, maybe through debt that got you shifted over from being a carpenter to being a slave. That's what was typical in the ancient world, but Corinth wasn't like that. This was a town with opportunity. 
This was a place you could climb. And therefore, Corinth was a city obsessed with status. How far have I climbed? Have I climbed further than they have? Corinth also had a, was a city with a ton of money. It had huge advantages just based on where it was located. It was on this little stretch of land between two seas and was a huge port. You could go one way and get to, to the east. You could go the other way and, and get to, to the rest of Europe. And either direction, there was a lot of money to be made. So there was trade and goods coming through that city all the time. People were making money hand over fist. And that created a culture that was just really, really materialistic. It's a place where it mattered that you were among the haves, not among the have-nots. Here's how one historian summed it up. Corinth was a city designed for those who were preoccupied with the marks of social status. The value which others place on one's goods and achievements. That's what they were about. So when Paul says he was writing to a church in Corinth, he means he's writing to a church in a culture focused on self-image, on status and wealth and honor and power, and through all of this on advancement, just advancement, just climbing that ladder as high as you could, as fast as you could. But Paul is writing not just to a church in Corinth, but to a church in Corinth. He's writing to people who are called to be saints, called to be holy, called to be not like what's normal around them, called to a new set of values, a new way to be, a new community. That matters too. To be set apart means to be pulled out of the values and the norms of that culture they were in, even though they kept right on living in that culture. In, in other words, being, being with Jesus is supposed to make a difference. It changes how you relate to other people. It changes what you want from life. It changes how you see yourself. And that was the problem in Corinth. Paul is telling them right here in his, in his opening address to them who they are. Because he's going to end up spending most of the letter reminding them to act like it. With one blow after another, Paul's going to highlight how they've let the values of their city shape the culture of their church. As one person put it, the problem was not that the church was in Corinth, but that too much of Corinth was in the church. The church is supposed to be in Corinth. It's good to be in the world. It's good to have friends and connections with those who don't yet believe. That's good. That's right. The problem was that too much of Corinth had gotten into this church. This has a huge effect on how this letter is going to unfold. This is the one of Paul. Paul has, has written a bunch of letters that are in the New Testament, and a lot of them are about theology. They're about a, a big idea about God or about what God has done in Jesus that Paul will introduce and then kind of unpack and then later apply at the end. This letter is not like that. This letter jumps from topic to topic to topic to topic all the way through from chapter 1 to chapter 16. Sometimes he's responding to a letter they wrote to him where they asked him some questions about things they were dealing with, and he's given answers. Sometimes he's responding to a report that somebody from inside this church had brought to him when they came for a visit and he's hearing more about what's going on. Back and forth, he's going from issue to issue that they've raised or that's been raised about them. And in every situation, what he's trying to point out is how they've let the culture's values shape theirs. In chapter one and chapter three, he calls them out for lining up behind different leaders. I follow Paul, one of them says. Well, I follow Cephas. I follow Apollos because I like good preaching. And then, there's, and then there's the guy who just plays the ultimate trump card and says, well, 
I follow Jesus. So there. And it comes off like kids on the elementary school playground and arm wrestling over whose dad can beat up whose dad. They're turning it, they're, they're, they're Christian teachers into part of their personal brand. Paul's like, what are you thinking? And we'll see how he gets into it next week. It's not Christian. That's Corinth. Makes sense for Corinth. It matters what your status is and whatever the people think of you in Corinth, but not with Jesus. In chapter 12, he talks to them about spiritual gifts because they had turned that into a game of one-upmanship. They had turned that into a, a, a part of their status climbing ladder. They, they, were, they were arguing over which gifts from God to them mattered most, which ones you should be the most proud of. It's more status obsession. Maybe the most egregious thing at all, in chapter 11, he writes to them about how they're celebrating what we celebrated together this morning. The gift of the Lord's Supper, this ritual given by God to help us remember who we have in one another. They had turned it into a place to show who had more money than everybody else. The rich were showing up to this with a lavish bring your own dinner and eating it in front of the people who had nothing to eat just to make it clear to everybody else that they got money when no one else does. That's what communion had become to them because too much of Corinth, their wealth obsession, their materialism had gotten into this church. Absolutely unacceptable. I could go on, but for the sake of avoiding spoilers, let me just stop here and say, this letter is gonna be so, so good for us. Can you see? Can you see how how similar our setting is to theirs? I mean, we're in Nashville. They were in Corinth. This is 2023. That was, I don't know, the year 50-something. That was a long time ago. But even just based on the little summary I've given you, can you see how similar our settings are? A lot of times when it comes to reading the Bible on its terms and understanding its context and how it's different from ours, we got a huge gap to bridge in bringing that world to bear on ours. Not this time. Here's how another scholar sums up the climate in Corinth, described as materialistic, highly egocentric, individualistic, and competitive. (laughs) Does that sound familiar? (laughs) Just take the issue of status. Just one example. Take the issue of their status obsession. I mean, of course, pride is as old as the garden. Pride is baked into every culture everywhere. But for the pride that shows up in comparison to other people and competition, you know, based on, based on what you can do or what you know or who you hang out with or what you look like, our culture is as hospitable an environment as there's ever been for that kind of pride. Can you imagine what these Corinthians would have done with the like button? I recently read someone talking about the massive impact of the like button, which was created 15 years ago this year far beyond what the engineers thought it would be. Here's how they describe it. What the engineers failed to foresee was that the like button would transform their platform into a popularity contest in which users could now compete for the tallyable approval of their peers. The like button, in other words, introduced a precious yet poisonous commodity, quantifiable affirmation that would put erstwhile friends at odds with one another and themselves. Maybe that seems a little over-dramatized to you. Maybe it is a little over-dramatized. But surely you can see there, there's something going on there, right? He's not way off the mark. 
Status consciousness for us can become this kind of low-grade, constant baseline in life. And not just for young professionals who are climbing whatever corporate ladders in front of them, but for, but for everyone from, from kids on TikTok to grandmas on Facebook. And we all have the same calling that they had in Corinth. We are sanctified and called to be holy, called to be different. We need constant reminders of how we're meant to stand out and where we're going to be tempted to fit in. We need the medicine that they needed. Ultimately, what we need is, is wisdom, the same kind of practical help that Paul offers them in this letter. It's just one of my favorite things about this letter is how wonderfully low to the ground it is. It's just right here, earthy, right where we are, right on what we need, chapter after chapter. We're going to be talking about identity as we study this letter. We're going to talk about sex and what it's for and what makes it wonderful when it's done right and what makes it dangerous when it's done wrong. We'll talk about singleness and marriage. We'll talk about what a church gathering should look like. We'll talk about spiritual gifts and how to use them. We'll talk about death and what comes after. In other words, we're going to talk about the stuff of of life because that's what Paul talks about. Section after section, chapter after chapter, we're going to follow his practical guide all the way. This letter is going to help us see how we're supposed to be different from the world, what it means to be sanctified. That's point one. And friends, this letter, point number two, is going to help us see what it means to be in Christ Jesus. Paul didn't simply want to show them and show us that we must be different from the world or or even how we must be different, in what ways we ought to be different from the world around us. His goal is to show us why we should be different. I mean, this this is definitely a letter that's full of warnings based on really serious concerns that he has for his seriously messed up congregation. But he's not just telling them what to do and what not to do. He's not just scolding them for all they've already done wrong over and over again throughout this letter, what he's doing is he's taking them back to the grace of God in the cross of Jesus over and over. He'll highlight the messed up area of their church life and he'll take them back to the gospel to show why it's messed up in the first place, to show what they have missed. He wants them, he wants us to see what a difference it makes to be on the receiving end of the grace of God in Christ. They are sanctified, but only in Jesus What's keeping them from the holiness they were called to is an everyday and ground level gut awareness that God has been good to them through Christ. You're going to see him doing this time and time again over the course of the weeks and months in this letter. You can already see him doing it though in the way he, 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 he prays for them in verses four to nine. He's priming the pump for where he's going to take them time after time through the rest of this letter. In verses four to nine, Paul gives us a thanksgiving prayer for his friends in Corinth. This is really normal in his letters. He will tell his friends what he's praying for them. Sometimes the things he's asking God for, sometimes the things he's thanking God for. And in this one, it's mostly a a list of things he's thankful for. But along the way, he's giving us some really clear clues about where he's gonna go in this letter. Look at verse four. I give thanks to God for you, he says. And you might imagine them ready on the edge of their seat for what comes next. I hope he noticed all the things that he should have noticed about me. I give thanks to God for you because of how awesome you guys are. No, that's not what he says. I give thanks to God for you 
because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus. Best thing about you is what God gave you in Christ. That's what I'm thankful for. He doesn't thank God for the privilege of knowing people as amazing and knowledgeable and wealthy and gifted as they clearly are. He thanks God for giving them every good gift that they have. Look at verse 5. In every way you were enriched in him in all speech and knowledge. Paul's thankful for that. Here he's, he is a little bit softening them up. Gifts of speech and knowledge were really important to them. They were, they were proud about how much they knew and how, 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 what they could do with their, with their speech. And Paul is, is giving them a little bit of a yes, but approach here. Yeah, I can see that. You do know a lot. That's good. You're really good with your words. That's good too. But can you see what he does next? Yeah, you're, you're gifted all right. But the emphasis is on the gift. In every way, in any area where you got something to offer, you were enriched. Passive voice. You were enriched. You were given much that you don't get to take credit for. You didn't enrich yourselves. You were made rich by God. And verse 7 just rounds off this theme. You're so gifted that you don't lack anything as you wait for Jesus to return. And in the meantime, verse 8, it's Jesus who will sustain you all the way to the end. From the beginning to the end of this whole greeting, Paul keeps going back to what is theirs in Christ. For him, that's a reference to what Jesus did on the cross. That Jesus gave it all up so that they could have all good things. Any good gift they have comes downstream of Jesus sacrificing himself so they could be forgiven. Nine times in nine verses, Paul mentions Jesus by name. Over and over and over again, he takes them back to Christ. Can you see what he's doing? With these gifts that they had, they were like a 16-year-old kid whose rich granddad buys him a Corvette then that kid starts looking down on all his friends who are still riding their 12-speed bikes. They had nothing to do with the Corvette. They just got a rich granddad. Congratulations. It's not about you. You've got nothing to be proud of. Paul wants him to stop with this ridiculous one-upmanship when everything good they have came for free. And because he wants them to be holy, Paul isn't just going to tell them to be different. He's going to take their focus off themselves and put it onto God's grace in Jesus over and over and over again. He wants them looking at grace and then looking through grace at everything else in their lives. He wants them to know in their bones what a difference the cross of Jesus makes to the life of every Christian and every local church. And that's what we want. That's what we want out of this series in 1 Corinthians. We want it to drive us deeper and deeper into the cross of Jesus and into the wisdom that that cross produces for our life together in the world. That's the goal from this letter. Now, I wanna, I wanna take the last few minutes that I've got here and, and plead with you to pray that the Lord will use this letter in very specific ways for us as individuals and as a church. I want to give you three of them. I've already said we want in this letter to see how God's grace in Jesus makes us holy, to see what a difference the cross makes for how we live with one another. Pray these three things. Pray, first of all, that God will use this letter to make the cross of Jesus more central to how we as individuals live our lives. 
I mentioned that the letter is built around a series of problems or questions that Paul's going after one by one by one, one after another in no particular order. These are the things that people asked him about, things that he heard about from somebody who came to visit him. There isn't one theme that ties it all together. It jumps around a ton. The main thread that ties the whole thing together is the way Paul talks about one theme after another. See, in his response to almost every single issue that was raised, Paul will bring in the cross of Jesus. You'll see it starting next week and how he tells them to stop lining up behind which leader is the best leader. He goes to the cross of Jesus to tell them why that's not okay to do. You'll see it in chapter 5 and chapter 6 where he tells them about sexual immorality in the church and why it's not acceptable. You'll see it in chapter 6 where he tells them how to handle conflict and reminds them what what it costs Jesus to make peace. You'll see it in chapter 7 where he talks to them about how to think about marriage. You'll see it in his discussion of whether it's okay to eat meat that was sacrificed to idols and how you ought to relate to people whose conscience is different from yours on that issue. You'll see the cross of Jesus and and how he talks about the Lord's Supper. You'll see it in how he talks about spiritual gifts. You'll see it in how he talks about the resurrection and what we're looking forward to. Over and over again, Paul is showing them and showing us the difference that the cross of Jesus makes for how we live our lives. See, here's the point. As a Christian, you just, you never get past the cross. It's not the entryway. You come through it to get into the church and then you move on to the next level of education. It is the whole package. Everything we do as Christians, everything we believe as Christians, it's all tied back to what God has done for us in Jesus. But it, 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 it takes a lifetime of growth as a Christian to see the depth and the beauty of what he's done and of the difference it makes to us. See, we never stop needing his grace. We never need his grace any less. And our growth as Christians looks like learning to see more queer, clearly and more quickly how we need grace, where we need grace, and what a difference grace has made in how we see ourselves and our work and our relationships and our conflicts and our money and everything we want out of life. So pray that as we go verse by verse, issue by issue through this letter, God will use this time to shape our lives by his cross. Here's another way you can pray. Pray that that as we study this letter, the cross of Jesus and its, its description in, way, in, in Paul's application point by point throughout this letter. Pray that this will shape the way we help each other. Not just the way we live our lives, but the way we help one another. Let me tell you what I mean. Um, I, I think the way that Paul works with the Corinthians in this letter is a master class in how to help somebody grow as a Christian. I, uh, I read somebody... Um, being honest, uh, another pastor wrote a helpful book on First Corinthians. He was being really honest about how he would have written this letter <laughs> if he had, if he was writing to people he'd worked this hard on, who had gone this far off the rails as the Corinthians had gone. He said it would have been a really short letter for one thing, maybe three verses long. Verse one, Paul the apostle. Verse two, to the church in Corinth. Verse three, just stop it already. Just, just stop. What are you doing? Who do you think you are? Just, just stop it with lots of exclamation points and maybe all caps. And, and in a way that would have been appropriate. I mean, they should have known better than to do some of the things we're going to see that they were doing. This was a messed up congregation. 
And he shouldn't be having to remind them about all of this. He shouldn't have to point out to them why it's crazy to make your favorite preacher part of your personal brand. I mean, if you were really into branding, couldn't you do better than to pick your favorite preacher? He shouldn't have had to tell them why it's not okay to eat fine food in front of hungry brothers and sisters before you take communion together. They should have known it's not okay to have an affair with your stepmother or to visit temple prostitutes whenever you feel like it. He shouldn't have to explain this stuff. But that's not how Paul comes at it. This letter is not three verses. This letter is 16 chapters long. And it's painstaking and careful and specific in how he bridges the gap between what they're used to, what comes natural to them because they've lived their whole lives in Corinth. And what it means to follow Jesus. He takes them seriously enough to look closely at what's going on in their life. He pays attention to that. And to look closely at what God has done and what God has said. He's paying attention to that. And to do the work of bridging the two. That's discipleship. Discipleship happens when you're paying close enough attention to see where someone needs help. And you're paying close enough attention to the word to know how it can help them. And then you're doing the the work of bridging that gap. In our church covenant... That's how we promise we'll love one another. One of the promises we make when we join our church is that we'll live together in Christian love. What does love look like for a Christian? Well, that, I mean, the promise goes on. Exercising watchfulness over each other. We'll pay attention. And encouraging one another to forsake sin and pursue holiness. There's the promise. How will we love one another? By watching over each other, paying close attention and helping each other forsake sin and pursue holiness. That's the commitment that Paul made to the Corinthians. And in this letter, he's going to show us how to do it. Friends, it is costly to love somebody else in this way. But it really is very simple. And it is absolutely powerful. I will never forget one of the first times somebody loved me like this. I'm thinking back to a time in graduate school. I was wrestling through some big questions about faith. I was hashing through a bunch of arguments I was having with myself and with the books I was reading and the friends around me who didn't share my faith. It was a, a really productive but a bit tumultuous time for me in my life as a Christian. And I had a friend who was older than me who kind of been down that road that I would use as my kind of sounding board. The devil's, I'd be the devil's advocate. I'd pitch at him a lot of the arguments I was feeling pulled by and hope he could knock them all down one by one. And he was so patient to do that with me. After a weekend full of conversations like this one, though, following on probably at this point a couple of years of conversations like this one, he sent me a note on what he had noticed. I'm just going to read you a couple sections from it. Brother, he wrote to me, God has given you a wonderfully sharp and inquisitive mind. I thank him for the ways he's equipped you. Yet I've noticed a pattern in you that concerns me. Many things you say and patterns of your speaking generally make me think that you deeply desire intellectual recognition. It almost feels like an idol. Brother, I don't claim to know your heart. I can only address what I've seen. But you make, you make frequent references to being intellectually respectable. You frequently criticize your own lack of learning. You frequently praise me for certain intellectual accomplishments. Oh, brother, if, if I'm way off, forgive me and forget I even raised this matter, but I seek your good. So let me encourage you to pray about these things and examine your heart. 
Meditate, he wrote, on John 5, 44. It says this. How can you believe if you accept praise from one another, yet make no effort to obtain the praise that comes from the only God? The desire for intellectual recognition and the praise of man has led many once earnest professing Christians far smarter than you or me into wrong thinking, false teaching, and worse. I have to battle this desire for recognition in myself all the time. I have to make deliberate choices that go against winning glory for myself. How my flesh wants it. Brother, please be a fool with me for Christ's sake. Be the least of these. Be among those that are not. Let's live gospel lives that'll be despised and persecuted like our Savior. Matt, my brother, beg him to keep you. Plead with him and beg him to destroy any desire for the praise of man which continues to exist. Then keep begging because it'll probably keep coming back. There was more to that note that he wrote me, a lot more, but you get the gist of it. I can still remember what it felt like to open that email and start reading it. It hurt at first, <laughs> let me just be honest. It hurt because I knew he was right. He had seen what I didn't want him to see and what I didn't want to believe about me. He'd seen right through it. He was right and that hurt. But I also knew immediately, oh, this is going to help me. This, thinking about the prayer, this is going to help me. And underneath it all, what I knew immediately was that here's a man who loves me. This man, he loves me. He was doing for me what, what Paul's doing for the Corinthians. This is 1 Corinthians discipleship. He learned not just what Paul was saying. He hadn't just mastered the contents of this letter. He had seen what Paul was doing and, and decided to do it too. Taking the gospel and careful attention to somebody you love and bringing the two together so that their life is shaped more by the power and beauty of the cross than it has been. This was a, a busy man. It took hours he didn't have to think and pray about what to say to help me. It, it took hours that he didn't have to then write it all up and put it on paper. But he did it anyway, because this guy loved me. And because this is how Christians serve one another. This is just basic Christian faithfulness to one another. This is Christian friendship. And we'll grow together, friends, as a church. We will thrive as a church culture when we offer each other this same kind of careful and costly and Christ-centered love. So will you pray with me that as we walk through 1 Corinthians, we won't just see the details of this letter, but we'll see the method of it. We'll see what Paul was doing and we'll be willing and ready to do it for one another. And as we take that, that prayer request, here's the last one, and I close with this. Pray that how Paul points them to Jesus will shape how we face our future. I love the way Paul finishes off his greeting. I, can't, I still can't believe he did it in a way. Knowing what he's about to say to these Corinthians and how far gone it seemed like they were, it's amazing to me that he tells them that Jesus will sustain them to the end, verse 8, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. This congregation, guiltless? How could he know? From a wider view of this letter, you know who he's writing to and you see how messed up they'd become. It's a stunning level of confidence. How could he be so sure? Verse 9, 
God is faithful. God is the one who called you into this fellowship. Jesus is the one who will sustain you to the end. He could have said, I've had it with you guys. I'm out. I'm going to cut my losses and focus my time on the Philippians or the Ephesians where things are going so much better. But Paul didn't say that because Paul saw he was caught up in something that God was doing. He was just an instrument in, in God's hands. He didn't think twice about doing his part. And he writes a stern letter full of warnings and corrections, all because he's blanketed it all with this hope that God is with them still, that God isn't finished with them yet, that God will finish the good work that God has begun. He does this work in their lives and calls them to accept this medicine into their hearts because it's all up under the blanket of a God who never does anything halfway, a God you can bank on to carry you all the way to the end. And that's the hope that we need facing our future, both as a church and as individuals. This medicine won't always go down easy. And it will hurt to see in our own hearts the same grip of sin that was in theirs. To whatever extent we see ourselves in these Corinthians, we're going to need the same comfort that Paul gives them here. We're going to need to know God is faithful. The one who sent his only son to the cross is not going to turn his back on those the son has redeemed. It costs too much for him to do that. We can trust him. Let's pray that the Lord will teach us these things through this time in his word. Father, we do ask you, by the power of your spirit, working through the clarity and beauty of your word, we ask you to form us into a people who are shaped by the cross and all its goodness and power. We We want to serve one another well and live in your name in the world in light of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. We pray that you would make us into that kind of people by your word. In Jesus' name, amen.